0: And welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo West Vic PHN Hub. Series seven, session six. It's Thursday, the 11th of November, 2021. Welcome back to the ECHO Network, and this session's titled Understanding COVID Positive Care Pathways, Part Five Patient Self Management Support. All right, well, in our COVID Care Pathway series, we'll continue along the pathways this week with a focus on patient role in self management and monitoring. To date, our series has focused on those earlier steps of the pathway from patient triage, clinical um, and risk assessment, and uh, then remote patient monitoring, and the entry points of the um, patient in this pathway has been through public health units and health services with an emphasis on risk stratification and and safety of course. Today we'll be exploring some of those principles of patient-centered care that is a core component and the aim of GP care models and we'll do this by placing the patient at the centre of the COVID journey. We'll be considering how patients can actively participate with monitoring and self-care. We'll consider the safety of the home environment as a setting for care and how telehealth and patient self-care apps can support the interface between the home and the clinic. We'll be considering patient safety, responsibility, preferences and communication and shared decision-making in the context of COVID illness. And we'll open up the conversation about care in the family context and for the whole household. Our didactic will focus on um, patient self-monitoring and our case today raises questions about how we might bring a low-risk pathway for COVID care to life through a primary care model. The question we'll focus on this morning and through our case is how could we manage very low-risk and low-risk patients in the community through general practice? And to assist us to place the patient at the centre of our discussions, we're privileged to have trusted Echo colleague and now health consumer on our panel to contribute to discussions today about their experiences of COVID care pathways. So let's get underway. I'm Bianca Forrester GP. I'll be facilitating today's meeting alongside Echo coordinators um, Fee and Gemma. Sorry, Fee and Katrina. And thanks to Zach for note keeping and Jade for um, audio and video production. So welcome everyone from the West Vic regions and any observers from outside. Thank you for introducing yourself in the chat and I'd like to welcome our panel this morning um we might do a quick uh, whip around and, and I'll invite the panel to introduce themselves so we'll start with you Linda uh, good morning everyone Linda Doverne from West Vic PHN thank you and Kate good morning I'm Kate Graham
1: a GP clinical editor of the COVID health pathways for Vintas and a COVID clinical advisor
2: thank you and um Lena Hi, yes, I'm Lena Sanchi, uh, Head of Department of General Practice at University of
0: Melbourne. Thank you. And um, I'm delighted, I'm not sure if Alison's on yet, but I'm delighted that Alison's going to present our case this morning. Um, so Alison's GP at Ballarat Medical Centre and at Ballarat at Home, um, help Ballarat Health Services. And I'd like to introduce our health consumer, someone that you'll all know, um, Rachel Robinson. Hello. Hi, Bianca. Did you want to quickly um background the kind of what what what's why we put you on panel this morning? It sure. Uh, hi everyone.
1: I joined these uh, sessions um this year and last year. Uh, i'm I am the coordinator of by five Wimmera Southern Mali early years uh, project, and um I was unlucky enough uh, it, very early in this outbreak to contract. Uh, COVID from my husband who contracted it in a fleeting um, contact Uh, and I was in hotel care for nearly two weeks, um, not very ill, some ongoing symptoms um, and keen to share my experience to help others, um, I guess, be managed in a primary care environment.
0: Mm, Thank you. So thanks, Rachel. I really appreciate um, your contribution this morning, because I think that something that's been missing probably in our series so far is really that, um, you know, patient experience as we've been trying to put together, you know, our health systems and pathways. So great to have you there to um, anchor us in the patient journey today. All right. So um, I think you guys know the drill, um, you know, about the etiquette. Uh, We've got some learning outcomes um we're going to look forward to discussions as always please uh throw lots of questions in the chat Um, we're going to have a good half an hour for discussion and I think this in this session we're really going to bring to life what it might look like for us as we head into COVID becoming endemic and perhaps business as usual care so lots of opportunity to um throw in discussion uh in the second half but for now um, I'm going to hand over to Linda Govan for a PHN update thank you Thank you, Bianca. Good morning, everybody. Um, <clears throat> so as you can see
3: there, our vaccination rates are looking really strong across the West Vic PHN region. We've got 95% first doses, 92.2% second doses, and they're also consistent across our sub-regions as well. Um, next slide, thanks. See? Excellent. And they're also really good consistency across our LGAs. Um, That's actually the Barwon Southwest region, um, as you can see, 95% first doses, all over 90% for second. And if we move on to the Grampians, um, we've just got a couple of pockets sitting there just under 90% for second doses. But again, there's um, uh, every week there's uh, improvement and still work happening to uh, to tackle those um, hard to reach areas. Okay, next slide, thank you. So just a general update from the PHN, we still have the EOIs open. So if you are interested in adding Moderna to your stock, you certainly can do that. There's an ongoing EOI happening now. We had 15 practices onboarded or who are in the process of being onboarded. They'll start with Moderna on the 22nd of November. Uh, And just a reminder at the moment, you can't use Moderna as a booster. It hasn't been approved as yet. They haven't applied for authorization. I think that's the case at the moment. Um, I think the challenge for general practice around excess vaccine doses is definitely a problem. There is a a process if you have extra excess AstraZeneca to contact um, us at the PHN and we all liaise with um, the VOC to um, seek a solution around having that stock collected. It has to be at minimum eight weeks to expiry. You must have the cold chain records in at least 20 vials um, to be collected. And in its original packaging, so there are some provisions there that need to be looked at. Um, Pfizer, a little bit more challenging. Um, So if you're finding that you're having excess stock, you can apply to have your allocation reduced to a 60 a fortnight. Um, The PHUs are both well stocked. So it's getting harder to hand over stock to them as well now. And also it's challenging to transfer between practices, but uh, we'll do our best if you do have excess stock, we'll see what we can do, Um, but also contact the VOC with um, extra excess stock as well. Next slide. Great. Um, in regards to our vulnerable population activities, we had a really a, a good response with the second um, round of the EOI for our inReach. So we've got 15 practices across the region now who are, are participating in the in-home support. And we've got a couple up in uh, Warwicktonville as well, which is really good to, to see. Um, And we had some excellent feedback from uh, Ballarat Health Services disability liaison officer just around the support that that this service is providing in the uh, Ballarat and surrounds region as well. Um, Just in regards to the disability support happening in the Grampians region, there's a couple of um, vaccination days specifically for people with disabilities, um, early December, the 1st and the 8th of December. If you have a patient who has a disability and you're concerned that they're having issues accessing vaccinations, you can call them um, directly. The disability, disability liaison email is in the in the box there, as well as the phone number. So again, it's really a really good service that we've got in the Grampians region. Um, in regards to aged care, we've had Aspen are the provider for inReach for the Booster program in uh, Victoria. They have been contacting the privates in our region um, and booking them into a schedule. However, we also have support from both of the the teams from the public health units as well. They'll go into any of the private rats if there's any outbreaks, which has um, been um, a couple in in Ballarat. There's so they'll they'll come and do the booster or accelerate the I guess accelerate the schedule, getting there ahead of Aspen. So that's an opportunity as well. Um, yeah, so that's that's underway now, which is really good. So that's. That's all on that. And last slide, just in regards to what's happening with the um, COVID care pathway work. So really not a lot to add today. This is the same information as I had up last week. Just what we, we do know, there's still a lot of uh, conversations between the Commonwealth and state about what this package of care will look like and how it will integrate with the work that's already happening on the ground now with um, the, the models that we've got in our regions. Um, We do know that the Commonwealth is progressing talks with Health Direct as a single triage point and we'll be meeting with them, well, setting up a meeting hopefully in the next week or so to really determine what that's going to look like. So, um, yeah, still work happening in that area.
0: And that's all. Thanks, Bianca. All right. Thanks, Linda. Over to you, Kate. Thank you. I'll just get the slides. Um,
1: So we had a pre-submitted question, which is going to be a tricky one to answer um, because there is no absolute answer about it. And it's just about our ongoing question here, which is reducing our risk of COVID exposure in our practices. And I think, again, as our discussions have sort of continued each week, um, it is about thinking about your individual practice, what your setup is, what your patient demographics are, and Bianca and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday and where we would use rat testing Um, and some of the things that we were thinking about um, in terms of practices that we were thinking where it might be useful. There are lots of barriers to sort of the widespread use of rat testing. Um, So rapid antigen testing within practice and some of them are that 15 to 20 minute wait time and having to have an area where you sort of effectively have to have people waiting until they get the result through, the cost, all those other things. But maybe thinking about certain patients where you know that the encounter is going to be higher risk. So for patients where you're going to be spending a long amount of time, for patients where you're going to be doing something where a mask is needed to be removed, where you're doing something around the face, if you're doing the sort of excisions that might take a longer period of time, um, they were situations that we could think of that potentially as a screening test, RAT may have a value in there. Um, But also, if you found that within your area and within your practice, um, if there was an outbreak in the area, if community transmission was higher, in those settings, RAT becomes a lot more valuable in keeping COVID out of your practice. Um, Vaccination status is something that is more challenging. And I think that there's no absolute um, answer yet. And I think health equity is one of those um, kind of things to keep in the back of your mind. Um, And I think with other vaccinations and other things, I don't think that we've ever had um, sort of differentiation in terms of keeping out vaccinated, unvaccinated patients. Um, But COVID has presented different issues from this regard. I think in terms of vaccination status, this is something that's, While we know that vaccinated people are less likely to have COVID, they're less likely to contract COVID, they're less likely to transmit COVID, um, at times of high community transmission, um, we cannot assume that vaccinated people don't have COVID either. So triaging or screening on the basis of vaccination status actually doesn't protect you 100% Hundred percent either. So I think, from that regards, it's not an effective mechanism of reducing COVID exposure risk within your practice. Um, but I'd really love to hear in the chat about other means that people are trying. Um, we've definitely sort of um, put together in the slides from last week, which is up online. Um, as well some of the rat testing um, in primary care discussions that occurred last week if you weren't here then. Um, So just continuing on, um, thinking about where you um, are sort of with their staff contact management risk uh, framework, just thinking where you fit in with that in terms of your PPE use, what you're doing, and just keeping referring to that in terms of the risk that an exposure would provide for you and your practice in terms of inconvenience um, as well as the risk to you as an individual of exposure. So I'll just go to the next slide now. So as we um, sort of look at our public health measures, um, test, trace, isolate, quarantine, our public health strategies are changing. We've had our first mass gatherings over the past week and a half, um, and that has created some work for me and my other job with the Department of Health in terms of following up some of the Melbourne Cup week strategies. Um, we're also, um, and some of you in the Barwon region may um, sort of come into contact with this, we're starting the pilot with the use of rapid antigen testing in schools, and this involves Um, children who are unvaccinated being put on a 7 plus 7 pathway where they will be isolated or quarantined at home for seven days and then they will come back after receiving a day six negative test and they will have daily rat testing to allow them back into school for the next seven days before having their formal day 13 PCR test So this is happening in 10 schools over this week, um, and then that'll be extended to 20 schools next week. Um, And it'll be sort of one of the changes that you might see in the public health directions as well. So from a GP perspective, again, it's something that's being managed centrally through the Department of Health and through um, the Department of Education. So it shouldn't uh, make too much difference from a primary care perspective, but you may hear about it. So in terms of RACFs um, and things like that, I think that this is going to be an area of challenge for us. What we're seeing is a lot more outbreaks in urban settings um, and in Melbourne particularly. Um, and some of this, uh, we're wondering if that may be related to sort of immunity wearing off. Um, we're seeing sort of a lot less deaths which is a really positive thing related to vaccination rates within those environments. Um, So I would be encouraging people to sort of think about sort of vaccination um, when residents that they are looking after in um, residential aged care last had their vaccination doses, thinking about who may be missed by the big um, sort of in-reach vaccinations because those extra doses, um, that extra sort of um, time may need to be covered by primary care or in reach in that way Um, and sort of working with the aged care to sort of help facilitate that, get in contact with the PHN as well if there's any struggles um, in accessing vaccination for some of those residents who may have moved in um, at times where they didn't access those main vaccination things or that they may fall in that offset where they're not at that six-month point yet for a booster um, is really important. Because we are now at a really different point to last year and we're, where we're having lots of visitors from lots of places entering into aged care. Um, workplaces are still the same. We're managing staff. We're not really managing um, patrons of venues, Um, or things like that um, as much in primary care. we're We're still managing that from a sort of regional public health perspective to a higher degree than in Melbourne settings, recognizing that in a lot of areas within our region, we still don't have any community transmission, which is fantastic. And I think a lot of that is related to our really high vaccination events. Um, So one of the other things that has come in within the past week that um, you may have seen change sort of formally within directions or you may not, the vaccinated household contacts of COVID, um, that's that's sort of where you've got the seven-day pathway and that's quite clear. Household contacts um, will still need to isolate for the full 14 days even if the household member has moved out. Um, So that is recognising that by the time the household member has had a test, they've likely been in their infectious period for two days before they've had that test. And so you're at that point of having maybe three or four days of um, contact with them at a high risk contact level within the household. So you still get put on that 14 day pathway. So I'll just move on to the next slide. Um, So public health unit contacts are really important to keep um, in mind. They're going to be your point of call for those tricky questions when you've got a patient um, or a positive case, all those kinds of things. So note them down somewhere. Vaccinations. Um, One of the key changes this week um, that you may have seen, I am surprised that it hadn't come in earlier, um, was that you do formally have to have the um, medical vaccination exemption only through the Australian Immunisation Register. You cannot have just a piece of paper, a medical note from your GP saying, you're exempt from vaccination. So that comes in on the 12th. So if you've issued any patients with a medical exemption from vaccination, even a time-limited one, and it hasn't been formally uploaded on the official form to the Australian Immunisation Register, that needs to be done because otherwise it won't link with their services app and they won't be able to get in anywhere and they won't be very happy with anyone. Um, So... I think that those are the main things with vaccination. Moderna is really important to sort of keep in mind because you may get more questions about it if you are thinking of putting it into your practice. Um, Just referring back to the main training, um, the Australian government sort of training programs, Um, if you wanted to sort of take a bit of a refresher on Moderna, be able to answer the questions. Because there are some differences from Pfizer just in terms of the timing of doses, those kind of things, um, in terms of um, sort of some of the cold chain differences. Uh, So those uh, parts are really important if you're going to be providing it within your practice. But in terms of advice to patients, apart from the dose timings and things like that, It is effectively quite similar to Pfizer, except for the fact that as yet, it is not going to be used as boosters. So just the next one.
0: And um, think, sorry, Kate, to oh, sorry. I just wanted to pop um something. I want you guys to let me know in the chat, are you getting people coming in for those third doses early? Um, you know, how strict are we being about the six months? Um, I guess what's that line around him? You know, compromise. I was thinking about um, a relative who's almost 100, you know, would we give him his a little bit earlier in view of the fact of his age? Um, so I'm keen to hear what you guys are thinking. Please let us know in the chat whether you're getting many of those requests. Sorry, Kate. Thanks.
1: Yeah, no worries. Um, I think those are really good questions to sort of be thinking about. And I know that in our practice there are a lot, there was a lot of confusion from patients early. And I think a lot of the media sort of um, information that came out early, particularly around healthcare workers, aged care workers, um, and the fact that doses were expiring uh, meant that we did get a lot of people in earlier than that six months coming in to get vaccinations. Um, booster doses. Um, So in terms of the COVID care resources, we've just popped up a new one this week, which is um, the Vic government sort of patient resource, which is managing COVID at home, um, which has sort of symptoms to watch out for, where and when to get help. Um, One of the key things on here that I just wanted to flag is that it often says reach out to your council to get assistance. Um, for sort of in-home support or things like that for deliveries of food, um, all those kind of things. Um, And as GPs, we kind of don't really enter into that space that often. But with COVID care, it's often the non-clinical stuff that people are asking about more often than the clinical questions. A lot of the time that I'm finding, it's the logistics of how do I do this? How do I get somewhere? What, what am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? Um, there are no food deliveries in my area. How am I going to eat? Am I allowed to get click and collect? All those kind of things. So um, I would encourage you to look at your own council site. What we're trying to do at the moment is we're trying to update the health pathways community, COVID community support page. We have some of the listings on there for some of the specific support services, like some areas have a phone line or a specific organisation that's coordinating COVID um, home support to regions. Um, So, have a look on there. But over time, we are also going to put in all the council listings because often they'll have sort of coordinating listings of local support as well. Um, And I think leading into our discussions for today... I just wanted to sort of remind everyone and flag that um, we really want to be patient-centred more. This um, For COVID care, it is a completely different model to how we usually set up patient consultations as a whole. Usually the patient is the one, for the most part, who initiates a consultation. The patient's the one who calls you and makes an appointment at a time that is convenient for them um, and in a way that suits them. That is part of their consent process. Um, But with COVID care, they're receiving phone calls, all sorts of things, um, and they get put on a pathway that kind of is a snowballing effect. Um, And I had a conversation with somebody this week with COVID who was reasonably unwell um, in terms of symptoms, but said, um, quite frankly, that the admin and the phone calls was about 500 times worse than the disease. Um, so, I think that that's something to keep at the back of our minds, and I'm sure Rachel will tell us a lot more about um, some of this as we get on with today. So, I think that was all for my slides. Oh no, we've yeah, that's just um, same as last week. Keeping that COVID positive care in the community page up there for all of us, and we'll hopefully have some more information up there soon from the Ballarat Health Services and Region um, Grampians Region. Uh, positive care pathways
0: great thanks Kate um over to you Lena and just while Lena's bringing yourself online I just wanted to highlight sure. there's a document um in response to your your request Jared. I'll pop some things from MVEC that's a really good resource um, and Lena was an author on the discussion guide for medical exemptions so there's a really nice tool by um Margie Dancher, Nigel Crawford and Julie Lisk and um, Lena, um, which I've popped in the chat. It's got some really nice, um, I guess, just, uh, you know, sounds like phrases. How are you? How you can have some of those tricky conversations. All right. Thank you, Lena. And over to Thanks. you. Thanks, Bianca. Can you see the
2: correct screen that I'm Oh, great. Thanks. Hi, everyone. It's um, really lovely for me uh, to have this honor of presenting to you today. I've been part of this ECHO community for a few years now since it's been running. And um, and it's really nice to be able to uh, talk to you all. I'm calling from the lands of the Wurundjeri people today, so I pay my respects to the elders past present, and emerging from those lands. So Bianca's asked me to talk to you a bit about self-monitoring uh, for our patients in general practice and, As GPs, we're we're entering a business-as-usual phase almost with this infection where we'll be getting a lot more of these cases coming in and also in the community and be called on to, to provide that care. And as we do in partnership with our patients, enable them to also take some control of their symptoms. So I'm going to talk about symptom monitoring in the context of this COVID care app, which our department is currently in a validation phase with the TGA. Um, and it has been an app that is linked to the COVID positive pathways, although not a formal part of the pathways, but we need more patients to validate it. So I will talk to you a little bit about self monitoring in that context. So. As I was saying, monitoring the very low risk and low risk patients in the community through general practice is part of patient-centered care and part of our role. And back in the beginning of this whole saga in 2020, Tricia Greenhalgh had to push out some guidance on telehealth and remote monitoring for actual COVID. And at that time, before we knew all the risks, um, it was deemed that most COVID could be managed in the community remotely with symptom management and self-isolation, but a constant need for checking in because there weren't any sort of remote monitoring processes at the time that had been validated. And almost a year later, we have another paper coming out saying we really need to be able to empower patients to self-monitor, and I apologise for my dog. I knew it would happen (laughs) during this time. empowering them to self-monitor and recognise what are the worsening symptoms and or associated mental health burden and how might they be supported to know when to access help. And, you know, now that we're getting more COVID and it is milder by and large, we have to kind of get out into the public less fear and more recognition of, you know, proactively when might I need to seek help. So the abilities of this COVID care application and and with most of these sorts of processes for the individual are that it supports them in in their home to monitor their signs and their symptoms and they can enter their vital signs into the app and the algorithms that sit behind it that have been devised by our respiratory physicians um, will help determine Give them feedback as whether they're in a healthy range or an unsafe range or give them feedback of the pattern that will then prompt them to take the further action or assessment as necessary. There's some embedded mental health questions also for people to kind of monitor their anxiety levels or depressive symptoms. And these are short versions of the PHQ and the GAD-7, and they're validated in over 20 languages around the world. So that's why they've been chosen. So the benefits of this for the wider community are, are great, really, because it increases capacity of primary care to take care of more of these patients, with less of them having to call for um with symptom anxiety and potentially reduce unnecessary hospital presentations and give patients a sense of something they can do while they're in self-isolation to monitor how they're going. And the other potential use is in transition out of hospital in the home or hospital admissions and back into the community where symptom monitoring might be desirable for a, a longer period The advantage also of this type of app is that it can register multiple users for the one site. So if you're a carer in a residential age setting, you can look after multiple patients at a time using the one logging and they have different frames. Or if you're a person in a family with several people infected, you can all use the one app and it prompts you. So this um, having carers being able to use the app gets over the fact that some people may not have a phone or may not be able to uh, speak or communicate well in, in English. So because COVID care is currently in validation phase, there is an onboarding process that patients can read and it's quite self-explanatory. And uh, once they sign up um, and they're in, we have the app that guides people uh, about the vital signs that are monitored and why they're important and how to monitor them. So it prompts from day one to four of infection daily And twice daily from day five on, which is the period of increased risk. So the sorts of signs that are are monitored are heart rate, respiratory rate, the single breath count. If there is an oximeter at home, you can measure and enter your um, oxygen saturations. That's via a separate device, not via the phone app because the validation of those measures are not very good. Um, And temperature. So you enter these these parameters and then um, it, and you log them there and it takes you through that. If patients want to, they can check more often if they want to, and it will, um, it will take the latest recording. But if everything's going fine, it defaults to its regular check-in time. After the sign entering, they can enter symptoms to do with COVID and also a self-check on how they feel, whether they feel better, the same or worse than before. And then we have the mental health symptom check that they fill in according to those those instruments I've mentioned. And so then we have the feedback. So on the far left, you can see that um, they have an overall appraisal of where they're where they are at the moment. So it might say everything appears to be in a safe range. What does this mean? You click on that and it explains what that means. And then on each of these little buttons uh, are the readings for that day. And if you click on one of those, you can see your pattern over the week. Um, Here I've just pulled out the feedback for the mental health uh, support. So this person's doing okay. They get told that and and get reassured with um, positive mental health strategies. And if they are sort of becoming more anxious, there's links to um, (coughs) Beyond Blue and also advice about when to seek help from their local doctor. Uh, Now, there are other alerts if things are not going so well. Uh, So if they've got something out of the vital range, they will be asked to repeat that in a couple of hours, unless it's very out of the range and then uh, troublesome, then they'll have a red alert. Um, But... What they've um, devised is a set of monitoring according to typical signs and signs of deterioration over uh, 72 hours. If they notice that changes are occurring in three of those measures over a certain time period, um, then they will get an alert to take a, a charge and, and to seek medical advice or to alert them to a negative trend. So the patients then have the data in their hands. So here, here is the profile of patients over the monitoring period for, say, heart rate, respiratory rate, et cetera. They can look at each of their, their readouts. And if you're doing telehealth, it's quite valuable to be able to see, see this too as their GP, and or they could bring it in with them. At the moment, there isn't facility to integrate it with the GP record, but that could be a second phase once we've passed this phase. So they really get a good picture of how they're tracking. And then there's a tab on to fill in their emergency contacts and they can also, um, and and there are emergency contacts there as well, they click on and this is the place where they then would switch to the next user that they have to fill in. And while we're in trial phase, they can also contact the trial team directly um, and we'll get an, a response within uh, that day. So currently, nationally, it's being used uh, because it's been slow. Our COVID has been slow over the last uh, couple of years. It's been slow to sort of recruit, but now picking up. So, so far, we have around a third of the 300 required to, to obtain this TGA approval. And feedback so far has been very positive. You know, So why do we actually need a clinical trial with this and a code for use? And those of you would know that once you've got apps that do medical interventions of any sort or give medical advice, you really do have to go through quite a rigorous process to ensure safety, efficacy and the quality. And so there's a lot of pre-testing that happens before TGA will allow you to enter in a trial. And I'm not going to go through these, but these are the standards that we have to fulfil if we're going to register um, this app after the validation phase. And it has to be sort of on that track, that possibility. So at the moment, while in trial, the data into the app is actually stored securely in Australia, in Sydney, and twice daily, it's downloaded and uh, monitored for any risk alerts. Um, and so any, um, anything that does appear to be uh, an alert to us, it, the clinician, the clinicians on the team notify the patients. They also notify the GP if the patient's enter those details. Um, and, uh, and usually, and then their data is monitored by a safety committee. So, so far, that's only happened over the last year or so once or twice. And those patients have already been in care. Uh, and there's been no, absolutely no adverse events. So it's been appropriately monitoring. So, so far there's been 109 users, a mean age of 44 or so, and about 14 of those 109 have had COVID. So this is something you can deploy at the symptom phase. Uh, it doesn't have to be a COVID positive test. Um, and they can start this while they're waiting for their test. And there's about five of those 14 with COVID who've had some at psychological distress with the breakdowns here. I won't go through the detail, but um, as expected, perhaps a lot in the mild uh, range. So some of the users have been quite positive, like this patient, for example, if I didn't have the app, I wouldn't have done anything. I wouldn't have even taken my temperature. And this healthcare worker thought it was quite reassuring tracking vitals and could see it would benefit a person who's acutely ill. Um, And uh, a lot of people finding confidence that they would go back and use it and felt that they had the confidence about when things might be uh, going wrong. Um, And so I recommend if you like, and I'm sure I've given these slides to Bianca and her team, but if you want to download it from the app store, your particular app store, and enter our dummy clinic and the code, you can have a try and play with it yourself and see whether you think you would like to register your clinic for the trial and you can let us know by email and then you can give it to your patients and they'll find you in the drop down list and um, and be able to the booklet that's provided to them is quite self-explanatory but for some you might want to go through it and and uh, just who's involved Uh, so victoria palmer's leading the trial aspect of it jeremy golden and bruce thompson are both thoracic physicians uh, who are involved in COVID positive pathways and have designed the algorithms and we in general practice have been adapting it for the GP setting and an industry partner who created the app is is two bulls
0: so they've been involved in that so that's it Bianca thank you thank you Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. All right. Well, thank you. What an interesting discussion. Um, Thanks, everyone, and I'm sorry I've held you over a few minutes. Please do grab the QR code, um, evaluate the session. Please um, pop any reflections and pre-submit questions for next week. We'll um, round up the chat and see if there's anything else that's come out of that. I'd like to thank um, you, Lena, for presenting today. Um, it's really great to um, see this app and this uh, really vision into the new the future of health with um, medical devices Um, and thanks so much Alison for your case let's kind of pick it up I want to see next week we're going to do pediatric pathways I'm kind of curious do the kids end up getting COVID so keep us in touch thank you so much Rachel and um, you know you'll be coming to Echo as you are as you are part of our community but thank you so much for sharing your health consumer lens today I think that's really useful and um, we'd love to have you on panel again thanks. Thanks, everyone. Take care. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google West PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network and you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions and you'll also receive our resource pack. That includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.